I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. It's Sophia. Welcome to Work in Progress. Okay, let's be honest. Today, my inner teenager is losing her mind because truly one of my musical idols has come on the show and I'm going to try to keep it cool and not tell her about like singing aggressively along to every single one of her songs in the shower through all of my emo teenage years. Jewel is here with us today. Having sold more than 30 million albums, opened for Bob Dylan, traveled the world singing songs that moved all of us, which she expressed felt more like prayers uh, than necessarily choruses written. She is just someone who I think has always encouraged us to feel and to see each other. It's no surprise that her illustrious career has also led her to becoming a mental health advocate. Through her platform, Inner World, she makes sure that people who don't have access 
to traditional therapy have access to the tools that can reduce anxiety and suicidal ideation. She does all of this while writing thousands of songs, parenting her young son, and being one of the most inspiring and thoughtful people I've ever had the pleasure of having a conversation with. And she's here today not only to talk about mental health, but the 25th anniversary of her album, Spirit. It was her sophomore record, and thanks to a very special fan, she has unearthed some rare recordings and is doing a re-release of the record with songs we've never heard, some new songs, and some of our favorites all rolled into one incredible album. Let's speak to Jewel about how she manages to do it all. Enjoy. I'm just so thrilled to have you on the show today. And I I really want to do something with you that I like to do with a lot of people who join me because so many people tuning in to listen to you uh, know you as this incredible recording artist and a thought leader and an advocate and all of these big, beautiful things that you are, you know, as a woman in the world. And I'm always really curious if you look back in hindsight, you know, at your life and career, if you look at yourself at, you know, eight or nine years old, like little girl, Jewel, do you see sort of threads of the same human? Were you always creative and artful? Um, Do you feel like, yeah, who do you feel like she was as a little girl? Um, Who was I at eight? Is that, is that what you yeah. Um, let's see. Eight was a big year for me. It was the year my mom left. My parents got divorced, started living wow. with my dad. Um, my dad, you know, had a lot of trauma, but we didn't know us. We'd been this Mormon family up to then, very like family home evening and kind of very wow. leave it to Beaver, maybe even in Anchorage, Alaska. And then we moved to Homer. My mom left. My dad started drinking, smoking, being physically abusive. My dad and I started bar singing oh. as a living. So it was a really radical life shift. So A, I just remember being like a really huge shift in my life. What was I like? I was very observant, um, very watchful. Um, and I say that's very consistent about who I am and what I'm mm. like now. I'd say a lot of the things I began learning definitely started at that age. And I can definitely pinpoint several realizations I had at that age that, that stick with me to this day. Wow. I have asked, I think, 200 people that question and didn't have the realization that your answer just gave to me until you said it, which is, I was like, oh my God, it's so weird that like of all the years I could ask you about why, I wonder why it would have been that one. Uh And then some, I think my inner eight-year-old was like, you went through family trauma at eight too. Maybe that's why you ask everyone what they were doing at eight. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God. I can't wait to tell my therapist about this. <laughs> um, that's, that's wild. And and that, I mean, that level of a shift at that age, I, I just imagine to be so, so formative. Trauma at any age, I yeah. guess, is, right? It definitely um, causes us to search. And there's some, mm. you know, great things that come of it. There's some things that I can think back on during that time of my life that 
were really helpful, that were really mm. good realizations. And then other things, of course, just coping mechanisms, assumptions you make about yourself, your mm. worth, and those types of things, which take years of unwinding. Yes, of course. And and those those assumptions and those connect the dots that our, our tiny brains tend to create or make, that as you develop in age, you go, oh, I see how I told that story, and I see how it was it just wasn't quite right. Yeah. We have a, you know, we're little kids making up stories about why our yeah. needs aren't getting met or are getting met. Yeah. Uh, but it's fascinating. Yeah. It's a fascinating study. Wow. When, when you talk about how you and your dad started to perform together in that, in that stage of life, was, was there music present in your house before this big shift? Was, was music a constant through line or did it come into your life as a result of that shift in your family dynamic? Music was a constant. Um, my parents had shows for tourists in hotels. And so it was like a family variety show um, mm. at like the cruise ships would, you know, get off in Anchorage and then come to the hotel. And this dinner show would happen where my mom and dad put on a show. There was a a film about my grandfather and grandmother who helped settle Alaska. Um, and so my dad was part of this original pioneering family in Alaska. Um, mm -hmm. But all my aunts and uncles sang, all of my cousins singing was um, really developed because of my grandmother. She had been an aspiring opera singer and a poetess. And she left those dreams behind to escape Germany during the Second World War and taught all of her kids to sing and write. So I had a really artistic family. That's an incredible family legacy. And yeah. And as as you got older, I mean, I remember gosh, it's crazy to think that you're, you know, we're talking about this 25-year anniversary of the record and you know, you've done this beautiful reissue and there's all these new songs on it. I'm like, "Oh my god, 25 years ago." Yeah, that is when I was like in my in my real emo feelings like singing along when it premiered in my room. I remember even then as a as a teenager you know, reading about your stories and um, hearing the way you spoke about making art when I was still trying to figure out if that was something I was going to do. And I, I remember being so struck then about you talking about experiencing a period of homelessness as a teen. Because thinking about it and going like, what would I do? How How would I make it through that? Like, would me or any of my friends you know, be so capable, would we be able to create something beautiful out of something hard? Looking back on that now, what, like, what do you recall from that period? Because I remember reading that, you know, you turned down this big record deal during that time. And I, I just, I think like, when I was a teenager, I couldn't believe the wherewithal and the drive that you had. And now as a 41-year-old woman, I'm like, girl, how did you do any of that? What is it like to kind of reflect on that, on this, on this, or during, I guess, during this anniversary moment? Yeah. Um, life gives us so many good things along with the bad. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was raised in this pioneer state where there weren't gender mm -hmm. roles. Uh, I was raised on a ranch where there weren't gender roles. Uh, my aunts shooed their own horses and built their own log cabins. I was taught to work. I wasn't taught to work differently because I was a, a girl. Um, 
I was expected to figure things out and get things mm-hmm. done. And so even though I had a lot of things going against me, you know, uh, like abusive household and those things, mm-hmm. that was a really good thing going for me. I didn't know that I was lesser because I was a female. And part of my natural resources, you know, we develop negative coping mechanisms, but sometimes I think there's something else called brilliant resilience. We tap Mm -hmm. into parts of our nature that are an innate gift to us. Part of one of my innate gifts was I was very independent. I just was. I was the kid that didn't mind not being at the sleepover or, you know, just doing my own thing or sitting quiet. That just so when I wanted to move out at 15, that felt better taking on, you know, rent and trying to pay rent and trying to take on jobs felt Mm. better to me than staying in a house with my dad, who wasn't nice to me. And so that was that independent thing that really worked for me. And then Mm. being raised in Alaska as well and around nature, nature doesn't lie. If you know how nature works, you know how physics works. And so there's no shortcut. You know, hardwood grows slowly, takes a long Mm. time. Softwood grows quickly, falls over. So you kind of put all this together. Um, I turned down having sex with a boss when I was 18. That's how I became homeless. Got discovered at the end of that year. And when I was offered this big record signing bonus, it just, nobody's given anything for free. I just know that. I just knew that because of how I was raised. It's not free money. It's not a free million dollars. But nobody was telling me what it cost me either. Mm. And so I had to educate myself what is the cost of this free million dollars and is that a cost I want to pay and it turns out that wasn't a cost I wanted to pay it would have leveraged me it would have meant I had to have a really successful album which nobody can force a successful album so that's ridiculous and a lot of pressure to put on yourself which wasn't pressure I wanted Um, and then when I learned how the contracts worked the math was just I'd have to sell so many albums to repay it it was a loan Yes. And that's just not what I wanted. I wanted a career. And so my motto was hardwood grows slowly. And so I had to make sure that I was building and I was advocating for myself and that I was building something that would protect art and protect me to have what I actually wanted, which was a long-term career. I mean, it's mind-blowing. It, first of all, hardwood grows slowly is such a good motto. And brilliant resilience, I like, I think... You know, I I came of age like sneaking home from school a little early every day to watch Oprah. And I just think about like when Oprah is like, somebody tweet it. I'm like that, like those phrases belong on like bumper stickers and refrigerator magnets. Like I want to look at it every day, like an affirmation. But to think about the, the fact that you had the wherewithal to pause and analyze so young and in such a difficult moment in your life when you know, I mean, a million dollar contract sounds like such a a life raft. How how did you begin to analyze what that really meant? Because you're right. Nobody gives anything away for free. The trade-offs as you learned them weren't worth it. But did you have people to go to or or were you trying to do research, you know, by looking things up? Like how, how did you even make sense of this huge world of, you know, the industry that stands up? the art we make because the industry is not um, particularly gentle or or artistic. It, it is a banking situation, but, but it's fascinating to me that you figured that out at 18. Yeah, I think, again, it's just a gift of growing up in bars. You learn mm. to be street smart. You learn to, nothing's what it seems. 
you learn to trust your gut and trust your instincts. Mm -hmm. You learn to rely on yourself. You learn there are no shortcuts and nothing's for free. So you just kind of start to really learn those lessons. I'm also dyslexic. And I think that as hard as it was and as stupid as I thought I was most of my life because I didn't do well in school and lots of other reasons, it made me really good at patterns in a way that I didn't know to appreciate until much, much later. Like looking back, mm. it's some part of how my brain works. Like when I was eight, because you were asking about eight, I was in these bars. I was really sad, right? Mom left, abusive dad suddenly. Like my life changed so much. And as I started singing in these bar rooms, what I noticed is we all had something in common. We were all in pain and nobody talked about it. Yeah. I was in a world of pain that was so acute to me. It was so, uh, I was so aware of the pain I was in. And then I looked around and I was like, wait a minute, I have a front row seat to watching other people in pain. And I'm watching people drink, do drugs, get in these crazy volatile relationships, anger, addiction, just a lot of different ways. And then you watch it play out and you're like, I remember writing down in my no notebook, nobody outruns pain. Nobody outruns mm -hmm. it. Like, why aren't we taught what to do with it? And so I knew it became my job to learn what to do with pain. And that was a question I put in my book. What do I do with pain? And so then I had heard about the buffalo goes into the heart of the storm. Um, it's the quickest way is through. And that really hit me as a universal truth. The quickest way is through, move toward my pain. And so the mm -hmm. tool I had at my disposal was writing. I liked writing. I journaled. Mm -hmm. And so I used writing to move toward my pain. Um, and so I just think it's little things like that you start to pick up of like, I want to handle my pain directly. I can't avoid it by doing drugs or numbing out. You still have to deal with your pain. Uh, the quickest way is through. And you start to kind of piece things like that together on top of a lot of street smarts, you know, on mm -hmm. top of just having to advocate for myself it was the perfect training ground to hit the record industry because it is a tough business. This is a tough business and it's full of tough people. But mm -hmm. I grew up around biker bars and, you know, all kinds of things. And so I felt like it was the perfect training. I, I felt very lucky to have received that training and, you know, and to have made it. And now a word from our sponsors that I really enjoy and I think you will, too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It also really strikes me, you know, you just said you received training the what must have been your natural inclination toward being such a receptive and observational human being even in a tiny little body to go through those shifts you were going through and and to be able to see the universal truth around you from such a young age it it strikes me as being so poetic which feels like, well, duh, of course, that incredible lens for seeing, you know, what's underneath in such a poetic manner would serve you so beautifully as a writer. And I'm I'm struck by this sort of like balance, this dichotomy that it that it seems like you've held for a long time growing up between, you know, the beauty and and the reality of people's pain. That was, yeah, an interesting thing for me in the 90s. You know, grunge was the big thing, which was great. Mm-hmm. You know, and when Nirvana came on, it was like a revelation. You know, until then, it was Madonna's world. It was, <laughs> we're living in a material world, and I'm a material girl. And pop and 
you know, Nirvana just came on and ripped scabs off the psyche and, and admitted mm. we feel like sh- <laughs> And it was a revelation and, and a whole generation felt like, yeah, I don't feel like a happy, shiny person. And that's beautiful. It's a really important part. You, c- you can only say I feel miserable for so long until you want to kill yourself. Yeah. And so then you have to ask yourself, now what? Now what? I, I'm in pain. Now what? Mm. I just happened to deal with that at such a young age. But the, by the time I was 18, my now what? I was already asking now what? And my music was about now what? Mm. But it wasn't out of naivete that I wrote I'm Sensitive. You know, it wasn't out of naivete that I wrote the line, in the end, only kindness matters. It was from a very gritty, streety, street-informed Mm-hmm. Um, I knew the screaming blood of my own losses. I knew the screaming blood mm-hmm. of the pain of the society I was in. And to choose um, to remain open, to choose to become more loving instead of more bitter is a real act of courage. It's a real act of power. But in the 90s, that was perceived as ignorant and Pollyanna. You know, I was mm-hmm. ridiculed in the press. The 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 press, which was, of course, very male-dominated, just tore me apart and I always just thought how they would call me naive and I just remember thinking how sheltered and naive they were they knew nothing of the choices I had to make to be the human that I was at that age and that me choosing to live and me choosing to be kind was the most formidable act of rebellion that they'd ever seen and they didn't even know enough to know what it was Mm. and that that sort of male domination and the larger patriarchy we we have all been steeped in for so many generations the dominance of it misses the mark of the amount of evolving you had done at such a young age because when you talk about reaching that courageousness and it being the opposite of naivete if you had been i don't know walking around like gloria steinem does today in the world telling people what it is They would have gone, what a wise woman. She's seen some things, but you were 18, you know, with a cherubic face and the voice of an angel. And they were going, oh, sweet little baby. (laughs) And and they were missing how far you'd come in in such a short number of years. I I could say it in the press. I could say it in interviews. I just think at the time there was such an inability for them to... I mean, I have a really specific view on it, right? Because I mean, it's my life. And, but I, you know, I saw a lot of, you know, bands that I didn't think had a tremendous amount of, um, how do I say it? I'm trying to think of a right way to articulate this. Uh, I watched a lot of people during the 90s get labeled as credible, and I saw Mm -hmm. other people get labeled as sellouts, and it wasn't always accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, You really kind of had to know what the motive was. You know, Mm -hmm. how many times was I backstage watching male bands spend an hour making their hair look like they didn't do it? Yeah. And then walk out as if they didn't care when I just saw them care for three hours in hair and makeup and then act like they didn't. So it's it's kind of funny little hypocrisies. And for me Mm -hmm. in my own life and in my own body, all I was interested in is how do I continue to live and want to live? And that was my primary interest. That was my only interest. And luckily, I had the Internet. 
So it really didn't matter what the critics thought. What really mattered is I was able to have direct access to people like you. I was able to have direct access and directly talk to people. And so I could tell them. They actually knew the thrust of where I was coming from. And that was amazing. Like, it was a miracle. I was My career started at the dawn of the internet. And that's the only reason I had a career, because it definitely would have been stopped. Wow. That's so cool. I, it's interesting, that this idea of... um what you got to see versus the sort of stories told by the press, I'm really fascinated by. I think, especially for women, they they like to pigeonhole us wherever they can for whatever clicks they're going to get. And it's wild to see how, you know, even now, people going through the exact same things, some are lionized, some are demonized. You know, it, it's like, well, where are you useful to us? It's not about your truth at all. And... I think, you know, we're seeing this moment where the, the internet is sort of cannibalizing itself, unfortunately. It's gotten so polarized. But still, you have the opportunity to cut through the noise if you just say, look, the truth is the truth. My experience is exactly what it is. You can feel however you want to feel about it, but this is my life. And for you to have been able to do that right at the sort of dawn of that age must have must have felt really empowering. Was it also Nobody can stop you from being yourself. You know, you can only be pigeonholed if you play along. Mm -hmm. Um, Like for me, experimenting and changing my styles, that was considered a sellout. For me, if I Mm -hmm. had just made pieces of you point two and point three, that would have been a sellout. But only I knew that. That's just because of what Mm -hmm. I'm like. That's what I know about myself. And so, you know, if I was more afraid, I guess, of what people thought of me, I would have done something more consistent so that I would have been perceived as credible, Mm. but that would have been selling out. And so I'd rather (laughs) not do that, even if it's perceived as the opposite, because I have to go to sleep with myself at night, you know? Mm -hmm. So nobody can stop you from doing what you know in your heart is right. And then you trust over the course of time that that plays out or it doesn't. And then you just make sure you're careful with your money and it doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, but I think that's the beauty of life all the time. That's the, that was the beauty of me telling my boss that I wouldn't have sex with them. Yeah. That was the beauty of him saying, I'm not going to give you your paycheck and me saying, fine, I'll live in my car. Like nobody can make you, you can't make me. You can't, you can't be leveraged if you refuse to be leveraged. You will pay a price. You mm-hmm. know, I knew I was going to pay the price of getting kicked out of where I was living. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't a price I wanted to pay. But I knew the investment I was making was in my humanity, and I believed. I've seen people sell out their humanity, and I saw the price they paid. They never made it back. I thought I could make it out of living in my car. That's a really special distinction to be able to make because it is so scary to feel like you could lose everything to stand up for yourself. And I, I feel like when you talk about, you know, the grittiness of Alaska as a place, the grittiness of the way that you grew up, what you were taught, the way you weren't, um, you know, overly gendered young in your life. All of that adds to resilience, like you said. And, you know, even when you talk about the the sort of wounds of life and the things you'd seen and going through abuse, when you talk about it in the context of watching nature, 
as a person who's only spent a week in Alaska, but it absolutely changed my life. I think it's the most magical place on earth. I was like, oh yeah, when you get really up close, you just see how it works and it's brutal and it's beautiful and it works as a system. It doesn't care about you as an individual. And there is something I think, yeah, something that must sort of stamp that kind of resilience on your soul from a really young age that I would imagine made you very formidable to so many people, including the boss that you rejected. I feel so lucky I had the type of childhood I had in Alaska. Mm. If I had been abused and neglected, and I, I had periods of it in urban environments, but I had so much time in big nature that it was a medicine. It it parented me. It taught me how the world mm. worked. It taught me how to be a human. It taught me that nothing lasts forever, that everything changes. So even my depression would have to change. I was part mm. of nature. I was part of physics. Um, it taught me so many lessons that I don't know if I could have overcome without it. Mm. It definitely. And then, you know, I was raised in a barn. I was raised with no electricity. I was raised with an outhouse. So living in my car, yeah. You know, a boss threatens me and I'm like, I have to live in my car in San Diego. Ooh, you know, it definitely was like a real. And I do have to say, too, like when I was homeless, I I learned I learned how to be happy. I learned how to stop shoplifting. I learned how Mm. how to get a grip on my panic attacks. I learned how to get a grip on my agoraphobia. When you can do that inside your own body by yourself, Mm -hmm. it makes you so powerful. And mm-hmm. so that was another reason that when labels came to see me and they were like, we'll make you rich and famous. I was like, that actually sounds dangerous for somebody mm-hmm. with my background. I just started to get some relief in my body from some really awful things. I wouldn't trade it. You know, it, it made me that my internal life was so real that the false reality of what and then the real danger. God forbid somebody with my background gets famous. That is the bad ending of every movie you've seen of every biopic about every musician. Like my life story should end very badly. And I knew it. And so I just constantly had to be like, how am I going to not let this story end up badly? And that's up to me. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of agency. And again, that really special perspective that you have. I even wonder in the context of, of what we know now, You know, you talked about what you went through with your boss, what it led to, you know, living in your car, which you managed to to really get the marrow out of the experience. Like I I think about I know I mentioned this earlier to you, but my therapist, who's my one of my favorite people on the planet, is a cognitive behavioral specialist. And I'm like, he is going to love this episode because so much of what you're talking about is learning to be sort of your own rudder inside of the discomfort. And. It strikes me in in the context of the way we talk and the way we've all connected now, you know, even in 2017, Me Too, you know, breaking into this nationwide and global conversation, you had talked about your Me Too experience so long before, and it seemed like nobody really wanted to hear it. Nobody wanted to take anybody seriously before they were really forced to, and even now, I don't know how much they're really being forced to, but... When, when people wouldn't listen to you then, were there tools you relied on or, or was it that sort of trust, that internal um, compass that you had, that you'd fortified that really let you 
stand in that truth and in your power during that experience? The press, you know, I, I would tell people what happened in the mm-hmm. press and then what would get written was that spunky gal lived in her car to pursue her dreams. And you're like, oh, right. how did that get turned into that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's it doesn't. Yeah, you don't live for the permission of people. It It, it is um, what it is. I think the reason I felt powerful at that time why I always was a good negotiator in contracts was because I knew you couldn't leverage me. I didn't want money more than I wanted happiness. I didn't want fame more than I wanted peace. You can't leverage someone like that. It's, you know, if somebody knows they can live with nothing, what are you going to do? What are you going to threaten them with? You know, you can only leverage yourself by your insecurity, right? Our insecurity leverages us, our wounds leverage us. Mm -hmm. And so the more we can heal, the more we can invest in our humanity, the more we can advocate for ourselves, even if nobody else is, it doesn't take other people seeing it or applauding it because that's a trust you build in yourself, the trust you build in your body through time. And it was also a shit show. You know, I'm 50 here talking about a long time ago in my life. And so it, it sounds quite tidy. It was frightening and scary and messy and yeah. all kinds of things, you know, But you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and saying, Mm -hmm. you know, that guiding principle that guides you, it's really good to know what those are. And for some reason, I was very interested in what I actually ended up developing during that year of homelessness was DBT and CBT tools for myself. Mm -hmm. I developed behavioral tools because I realized my behavior was driving my life, right? Like my shoplifting was going to get me arrested. My panic attacks were causing it to where I couldn't leave my street corner or get out of my car to go get food. And so how could I change those behaviors and how could I make those behaviors practicable so that I could see results? I had to see changes in my life. It couldn't just be a theory. I had to actually get results. Um, Mm. And so, again, when you start to develop those kinds of tools and you start to, like, get those kinds of results for yourself, it just, again, it made me value. And what I did, like, for my record career, I decided to sign that contract because I made myself a promise that was this North Star guiding principle of my number one job is to learn how to be happy. I knew I didn't know how. I wanted to know Mm -hmm. if it was a learnable skill. Was it a teachable skill? It wasn't ever taught in my family history. So I had Mm -hmm. to learn a new emotional language. You know, the language I was taught emotionally led to misery, abuse, and addiction. So I didn't learn a new emotional language. There was no college. So I had to put that together My number two job was to be a musician. And under musician, I wanted to be an artist more than I wanted to be famous. Mm -hmm. And so with those guiding principles, I let myself sign that contract. And I'm really proud. I am very proud to be 49, really proud to be 49. And I've never let those promises down. And it wasn't perfect. And it's been messy. And it's been wildly messy. Yeah. But I've always made every decision trying to live up to those two goals. And those goals are enough to, again, help the trajectory. It gets you there in the long run. It's some of this in the meantime, but you end up over here. And now a word from our wonderful sponsors. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. 
As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
I appreciate the way that you can talk about how it feels tidy now because you've done all of the work. You can speak from a perspective and then remind folks listening that in the midst of it, it's, it is a storm. It is a mess. That's what our life is. But I do think that, you know, the, at least for me, the sort of specialness of, of learning things and going through hard things and um, experiencing hardship is that then years later in hindsight, you can sit around with people and lean in about what this has taught us, how it's made us more human, um, what little nuggets we might be able to offer other people to make their their current you know, mess in the storm, like 8% less messy. What a gift that could be if possible. Yeah, these little, you know, for me, like deciding I was going to put my happiness above every other single thing in my life. Mm. My life changed. That's yeah. enough to change the trajectory of your life. I love that. If you make every decision based on that, does this add to my happiness? I don't mean like excitement. I don't mean perks. I don't mean like mm -hmm. I'm going to get the car to like make myself happy. I don't mean that. I mean, am I substantially doing better as a human? Do I have yeah. higher levels? Like, is my satisfaction rating higher or is it not? Can I audit that about myself? How do I quantify mm -hmm. it? If you can ask yourself those questions, it's going to change your life. Mm -hmm. But when I made excuses of why I couldn't be happy, and, you know, I work with kids a lot. We do a lot of uh, work with kids with suicidal ideation, self-harm, uh, anxiety yeah. disorders. And something I talk a lot about is when we stop making excuses, we get healthier. And excuses I, are different than reasons. So like I have a, I had a lot of reasons why I couldn't be happy, right? I had a lot of reasons. You can point to a lot of things in my life and go, yeah, I see why I'm not happy. Was I willing to let that be an excuse though? Or did mm. the buck stop with me? Was I willing to be accountable for my happiness? For me, it was realizing like nobody's coming for me. Mm -hmm. Nobody owes me anything. I, mm -hmm. What do I owe myself? Yes. Am I coming for me? Am I going to stop making excuses for why I can't be happy? Mm -hmm. I know I have a lot of reasons to not be, but am I going to make excuses for it anymore? I'm an adult. Now what? You know? Yeah. And so how does that fit in setting those um, sort of two all important rules for yourself? How does that fit in in the journey? You know, you said no to the first deal. And then obviously another opportunity came along and that felt better and you know, you you did make this incredible debut record that took all of us and the world by storm. How how did that happen? What was that moment sort of like? And how did you know that it was the right thing to do? Yeah, so I had turned down a record deal maybe when I was 16. It was creepy, pervy. I don't even know if it was going to be a real record deal. It just smelled <sighs> wrong. So who knows what that was. But right. um, went to school. And then when I was 18 and homeless, got discovered, turned down a million dollar signing bonus, um, took a big back end, set about trying to make hardwood grow slowly, folk record mm -hmm. at the height of grunge. I did a thousand shows a year at least. Um, wow. I did five and six shows a day. So maybe 1200 shows a year easily, oh um, two cities a day. Um. It's not cute. You know, I turned no. down the real world was a huge reality. The first reality show, I think, maybe. Um, and I remember my label coming to me. I hadn't made my record yet. And they were like, you're not going to believe it. There's this show. It 
you live in a house with other people and there's cameras in the house and they film you 24-7 and we could watch you go from being homeless to making your album so that by the time you launch your album, you'll be a household name. And they really wanted me to do it. But that wasn't Hardwood Grows Slowly. That wasn't my motto. So it's like I was just loyal to my motto, as dumb as it is. And, you know, everybody screaming at me saying you're ruining your chance at a huge deal here. But it supported fame over artistry and it supported Mm -hmm. quick growth over slow growth. And so I just I turned it down based on that, as silly as that sounds. And then my album failed for a really long time. And I did six shows a day. I did shows at 9 a.m. I opened for golf bands. I did shows at midnight. I drove myself everywhere in a rental car. I didn't spend any money. So I couldn't rack up a big debt from the label. So I couldn't get dropped. You Are Meant For Me failed. Who Will Save Your Soul failed. You Are Meant For Me failed again. I started making a second album because it failed so hard. And then Bob Dylan took me out on tour with him and he really believed in me. And I was like, you know what? If Bob Dylan's the only one that likes me, yeah. Like, it, and he was like, doing pretty great when Bob Dylan gives to you that the album, don't give up, stay solo acoustic. And it just kind of gave me a courage to go into year two of failing, exhausted. You know, I've done thousands of shows at this point, and it started to take off. And then it took off. And once it did, it started selling like a million albums a month for over a year. It was insane. Whoa. So you get to Spirit, the album I'm re-releasing right now, and it was like, ooh, sophomore slump. How will she do it? And you're like, oh. wow, what a terrible thing to tell somebody. I didn't even know that term existed, but thanks for putting that in my mind. Yeah, thanks for giving me an anxiety dish for dinner. Yeah, and then I was like, wait a minute. this can I can perceive this one of two ways. Like This can be the most pressure because I had this huge success, or I'd made a really good record contract, and I'm rich. And I don't ever have to make a penny again if I don't spend it. And I know I don't have to spend money. I know I can live simply. And that will buy me the fact that I don't have to have this pressure on me. I get to do whatever Mm -hmm. the F I want. Again, still, I still get to do whatever the F I want. And so that's where you just put all the voices for me out of my head. Don't think about what's happening at radio. Don't think about what you were meant for me sounded like. And I wrote Hands, which sounded completely different. It was a very simple plea. In the end, only kindness matters. And if I could tell the world one thing, it'd be that we're okay. I mean, it's it's a prayer. It's such a strange song to write, but it's what was in my heart. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. I didn't care if it was a hit or not. And that gives you so much liberty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you when you aren't worried about making people like something, but instead you want to do what feels right to you, I was reading an article this week about Andre 3000's new album. And he's just like, look, I don't know what to say to anybody anymore. I want to play the flute. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've seen anybody do in a long time. And I think artists like him, artists like you, who, you know, you've experienced like the biggest universe of success possible in in music and art making. and And you still stay true to the thing that feels good in your chest and coming out of your mouth. Like... That's, that is hugely profound, uh, I would imagine, in your own experience. But I will say, as a person who loves music and makes a different kind of art, it's, it's so moving for me to watch. It's a great reminder to not get caught up in all of the things that people try to put on us that aren't ours. Yeah. Yeah, I made an album 
what, last year, I guess I put it out called Freewheeling Woman. And it's the first album I've written from scratch. Mm. I've always had thousands of songs. So even like for a pop album, I didn't have to write a pop album. I just had at least a hundred pop songs in my catalog or country songs or whatever genre I wanted. But I wanted this to be who I was at that age, Mm -hmm. 47 or something when I was writing it. And it was a trip because you know a song should have a chorus coming in at 30 seconds. Just dumb shit you shouldn't know. It doesn't help (laughs) art. And not having a lot of female singer-songwriter role models, we don't see many of us make it. We've seen Madonna and Cher, but we just haven't seen like Joni Mitchell and those women come through these phases in our life through mothering, Mm -hmm. um, through writing through these phases. And quite Mm -hmm. frankly, we don't see many songwriters writing well past their 20s in general, male or female. Mm -hmm. And so it was a really interesting thing for me to like get this album from scratch out of the ground of my being of who I was now. And it felt so empowering. And it was also the most difficult thing I'd ever done because I had to really face insecurity. I had to face Mm. former sounds and versions of myself. I had to find a way of sounding free in my body again. And only I could tell when that was happening. It was a total trip. Wow. That's so cool. I I guess I never thought about like in my brain, I'm seeing it like you have this huge Dropbox of like Dropboxes, just folders and folders everywhere of like thousands of songs. And to have to, or or I guess want to, from the place you are in this moment, create something all new and not have any of those thousands of folders influence it. That's got to be a real trip. It was. It was really an interesting thing because I wanted to do it as a woman. I wanted to do it as a full-grown woman. I wanted to do it as a mom. I wanted to do it as a woman that lived through a divorce. I wanted to do Mm -hmm. it as a woman whose society says, you quit having value. I wanted to do it as a woman that felt Mm -hmm. powerful for who and what I was now and not what I often saw women do in my career, which was still try to wear whatever, act like you're young and not talk about your child Mm -hmm. and not talk about birth and all of these Mm -hmm. things. And so it was, it was a really interesting and, and really cool. I mean, I think I wrote 200 songs to get the 12 that I liked finally. Wow, that's incredible. And and it sounds to me like what you're talking about is really from this place of full embodiment. You know, I, <laughs> I'm going through my own version of this story, not with a, a kid involved, but people will sort of check in and be like, whoa, divorce and this and that, and how are you doing? And it's not that it's easy. It's that I've never felt more embodied in my life. I've never known myself this well. I've never been in this much integrity or this mentally healthy. And if I had to do it all again and make the mistakes I've made to get here, okay. And I don't know, I I get to do this thing where I ask questions and I get to put these stories into characters when I film on on a you know stage somewhere. But this idea for you as a songwriter that you get to take all of that and tinker and make and write and it's 200 to get to 12. I'm, I'm so fascinated and like enamored by the whole journey that you're describing. It's so inspiring. Yeah, I relate to what you're saying about, you know, a divorce. It's, it isn't fun at all. But when you can realize I've made a mistake, my life 
isn't the shape I need it to be. Yes. The shape that I've I've purposefully built mm-hmm. is making me feel like a prisoner inside of it. I'm yep. I'm dying of unhappiness inside the shape I built. Yes. I have to burn it down. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's an act mm-hmm. of courage. And again, it's not like I'm just recommending, I don't suggest everybody go get divorced. I don't think it's something to aspire to. But if you find yourself in that position and mm-hmm. you find yourself with a match and you have the choice of burning your own life down to the ground and starting over, which is heartbreaking mm-hmm. and full of grief, but mm-hmm. because you believe in a vision of what you can feel like in your body and how to do it differently with mm-hmm. humility, uh, without bitterness, without hostility, and just because you know that that's waiting for you in life still, it's a mm-hmm. powerful thing. Yeah. I think it's full of grief and grace. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I, I love the way that you phrase it. I I had this conversation. I had an incredible group of women all going through splits, uh, you know, started in the spring we collected more and more of us through the summer for whatever reason this this year they you know they're calling this the summer of the great divorce it's like okay mm-hmm. something's in the water but i i remember saying at one point i said you know i built this beautiful house but i built a house for someone else this isn't my house i don't i i this isn't for me and that's not easy to admit but i think it's better than not admitting it yes it's better than living it trapped yeah. in a in a beautiful prison. Yeah. When you when you think about all this perspective and and this new place that you made this new record from in the same season as you're having this re-release of spirit after 25 years, what does it kind of feel like to hold this beautiful history and all this newness at the same time? Is it is it is it like a trip to be on the seesaw or does it actually feel like you've just gotten to a place where you can hold space for all of it? It feels like continuity. Um, mm. People scratched their heads, you know, my whole career at what I was. Mm. Um, I didn't fit any tidy boxes and took a lot of punishment for it just in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I quit at the height of my fame. I was told that that was really shameful, but it was because I couldn't psychologically handle the level of fame I had achieved. It didn't make me happy. I hated it. I hated needing bodyguards. I hated all the death threats. I hated not being able to grocery shop. And I had to give myself permission to go, I know I really worked hard for this, but it doesn't work. And Mm -hmm. Again, being treated so viciously, there wasn't anything like a mental health break or those words didn't, I was saying them, you know, I was saying, I can't psychologically process and live with the level of fame I have. It's bad for me. It's bad for my psyche. Uh, Those things just don't translate the same way as the Me Too stuff just didn't translate. Um, Switching genres for me was authenticity. It was always perceived as uh, me being a sellout or things like that. So for me, it's really fun to defend my humanity, to defend what I knew was right in my heart, to make the choices I knew were right. Even though I was often the only one doing it, it's a lonely thing. And then you put on top of like all the other crap that went down during my life. It's fun to be here now. It's fun to be 49. It's fun to see Gen Z caring about what they care about because I care about it. I fought Mm -hmm. for that. I fought that fight. I'm here for that. 
I love, you know, I love where culture and kids are grappling and grappling with because that was the integrity and that was the fight I was in my whole life. Mm-hmm. So I I like it. I like knowing what I did with hands and spirit and why I made that album, who it is and what it says about me now and how that continuity's always been there. But it took this long for it to kind of play out. And now a word from our sponsors. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, 
the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You touched on this earlier, but it feels feels like the energy of it is in this moment as well with your art that that you've used your art to be such a strong advocate for mental health and for these conversations around awareness, especially with young kids. Um, I just, I think it's so beautiful, the the work you do, the conversations that you promote with them. And, and I know that this is the second year that you've done your Not Alone Challenge. And I would just love to tell the folks at home listening to this a little bit about it and um, you know, what it is, how you started it, how they can get involved if they're so inclined. Yeah, about 22 years ago, uh, my partner, business partner, and I started a youth foundation around mental health, again, when nobody mm-hmm. was talking about it. Um, we have one of the highest success rates now in the world of helping kids with suicidal ideation and anxiety disorders. And we do it without traditional therapy. Not that I'm against it. I'm all for mm-hmm. it. But not everybody has access to it. And that's unacceptable to me. And there's too many Mm -hmm. DBT and CBT skills that are teachable in group settings that get tremendous results um, that are free and scalable if we can figure out how to do that. So that's what we do in the foundation. The Not Alone Challenge um, is a huge campaign. It's a social media challenge, hashtag Not Alone Challenge. We have celebrities, CEOs, athletes of all types um, talking about mental health, why it matters to them, and then donating an auction item. There are incredible, insane auction items that you can bid on. And then there's also just like swag you can buy, like a sweatshirt or things like that, that all raises money to make sure that we can put tools into the hands of people that are living in what I call mental health deserts. People that have access to technology or a cell phone, maybe, but not access to a therapist. And so how can we put tools in their hands um, right now? We have 500,000, a shortage of 500,000 therapists in America. We think that if everybody were to seek help that needed it, we'd need we about 5 million therapists short. So for a real problem, mm-hmm. we have to figure out what to do with mental health in a different way. And the Not Alone mm-hmm. Challenge and the other company I started, uh, Inner World, are really about solving that. Yeah, that's so special. I mean, I think to your point, figuring out what skills are teachable and, and really life-changing. I mean, for me, figuring out how to begin to manage my anxiety like has absolutely changed my life and you know I count myself as very lucky working in an industry like the one that we all work in so often to have healthcare because I'm a union worker but so many people in our country just don't have that and I think to tackle and knock down these barriers to care is like one of the coolest things I see people do and so I just Personally, and I'm sure on behalf of everybody at home listening to you talk today, I just want to say thanks. It's a big, it's a big, beautiful mission that you made 
yours and I'm really inspired. Yeah, inner world is is centered around DBT and CBT skills mm. in group settings taught by lay people. So it isn't a mm. therapist teaching it. You're in a virtual environment with like 30 other people. It's anonymous and there's a trained guide that we train, but in skills. And so just as you know, because you have a CBT, you know, specialist, you learn these skills. So like if I was to describe them to, you know, your audience, it'd be like, we have a lot of people with social anxiety or agoraphobia. They don't leave their homes. Mm-hmm. And so we say, what's your goal to go grocery shopping? Um, what's your worst case scenario? What's your worst fear if you go grocery shopping? And they write that down and they say it out loud, maybe to the whole group. It's 30 people, all anonymous. Then you say, all right, if that happens, God forbid your worst case scenario happens, what's your plan? You make a plan. Who will you call? What mm-hmm. will you do? Step-by-step plan. And you say, all right, what's the best case scenario? And then they write that down. And then you say, we don't get to control the outcome, but if we could influence it, what could we do to influence the best thing happening? And so armed with that type of tool that you can practice and then have these really behavioral-based tools, you know, we're... we just were actually able to publish two papers showing we're as effective as traditional therapy. Um, and wow. it's all virtual. It's all anonymous. It's pretty cool. That's so neat. That is so cool. What an amazing thing to just wrap your arms around and say, we can do this. And, you know, I, I know I was thinking about the that sort of visualization of you like holding this whole new project and this 25-year anniversary project. And then I think about your arms holding this, you know, cause-based project. And it's like you've you've managed to to wrap your care around so many things, you know, for others and for yourself. And um I think it, it all stems from, you know, my job never changed from when I was eight. What do I do with pain? Why is anybody talking about it? And I've just been loyal to that. I've been loyal to what do I do with pain? And songs are how I dealt with pain. It was my medicine. Turned mm-hmm. out to be medicine for other people, which was such a an honor. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to have a career based on authenticity, based on my medicine. Like that's profound for me. It's been such a gift. And then to have a second career now based on the exact same thing, it was the same. My music is a side effect of learning what to do mm-hmm. with pain my skills and my tools are just a side effect of me saying, what do I do with pain? How do I, mm. how do I want to live? Um, and so it's really, it hasn't been having to like wrap my arms around something enormous. It's been trying to solve a problem for myself and realizing in doing so you solve a problem for someone else. That's beautiful. So from this perspective, you know, this moment where you're, able to look at all of these things what feels like moving forward in your life what feels like your work in progress currently or or perhaps on the road ahead um i think scaling up inner world um i think Mm -hmm. that's where we can make the biggest impact at the most affordable cost you know it's a freemium Mm -hmm. product it's free or as little as eight dollars a month for a premium product so it's you know keeping really scientifically proven we're a clinical research platform that's scalable like that's where all my mental energy is is like how can i create scalable scientifically proven solutions um artistically i'm working on a visual art piece uh that i'm really excited about i'll do an art installation in the spring of next year that'll have an album around it 
um, that is really turning me on at the moment and puts a huge smile on my face. (laughs) That's so cool. Well, we look forward to it. I know we're all really excited for this re-release of Spirit. I know I can only imagine how many people are listening to this going to Google Inner World, and I can't wait to see what comes in the spring of 24. Thanks. Yeah, really appreciate it. On the re-release, I um, have this guy named Alan that, like, ever since the mid-90s, I would lose songs, and he would be like, I would get on the internet and be like, I lost a song called Jessica. Does anybody have a bootleg? And the same guy always got back to me. So I ended up hiring him, like, in the mid nineties. And so he, he put this album together. It has like hundreds, depending on which like version of this album you get of this reissue. It has like hundreds of like crazy bootlegs, demos, outtakes from the studio sessions. It's very Alan's world. Um, Cause I forgot, I don't even know I had any of this in the vault. So it's just <laughs> Alan's special brain that put all this together. <laughs> that is so cool. We love Alan. Thank Alan's God amazing. For him. Yep. Yeah. Amazing. Well, this has really just been such a joy. And, you know, thank you for coming to talk about the whole spectrum of art and humanity today. I'm very grateful. Thanks. It was really nice talking with you. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. 
Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to a Cross Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 